0: Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number seven on November 4th, 2016, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room here in St. Louis, Missouri. Thanks for joining us. Today's main topic is collective hubris and tying together the interconnectedness of the environment, agriculture, trade, social organization, and the ability to withstand catastrophes that we've been talking about for the last five weeks. We'll also have our weekly regular news roundup research updates and our diy feature this week we're talking about a solar oven we also have a new feature this week uh an events calendar we're excited to announce our first workshop coming up in december but more on that later before we get started a brief programming note today's podcast closes out our series on the rise and fall of civilizations through time we won't have a podcast next week But our next series will be on food, and we'll kick it off in two weeks with a podcast that discusses hunting in historical and modern contexts. This podcast will include our first interviews. Let's move on to our primary topic of the week, which again was social hubris or collective hubris. Um, Over the last six weeks, I've alluded to this idea a couple of times, uh, but we all know that hubris is excessive pride or arrogance. So collective hubris is when an entire society exhibits hubris. An entire society has excessive pride or arrogance. We often see this when people say that their country, or their way of life, or their social unit is the best at everything in the world, right? This is collective hubris that can't possibly be true. One idea that we as anthropologists use is ethnocentrism, and ethnocentrism is the idea that your way of life is better than those around you. It often leads you to discount ideas or practices of other groups as wrong or backwards. And this often leads to or contributes to collective hubris or the ability of a society to think that its way of life is the best. And then that often leads to actions that are sometimes not as adaptive as they might otherwise be. So my favorite example of this is is the so-called squat toilet. If you go to Google and you type in squat toilet, you'll get more than enough images of what this is, but it's basically a small hole in the floor with foot pads on either side that one squats over to relieve him or herself. The one nice thing, at least from my point of view, is that you're not actually sitting on a seat that's been sat on by hundreds or thousands of other people, so in some sense, there's a bit more sanitary uh, consideration there. Also. Supposedly, when you squat completely, it relaxes the ligaments and muscles around the bowel and it allows you to have a more full uh, movement. And there are a number of other benefits. People have less hemorrhoids. There's all these wonderful benefits that are conclusively shown in many, many studies. Yet, I imagine most of you out there aren't going to rush out to remodel your bathroom to put in a squat toilet instead of the more traditional sitting toilet that we have in most of uh, the westernized world. This would be an example of social hubris. I'm telling you that there's a much better way to relieve yourself, but you're choosing to stick with a less adaptive toilet just because that's what you feel more comfortable with. Now that was a somewhat uh, spurious example because the jury's actually out whether or not squat toilets are better for you or worse for you. Uh, There's evidence for both sides there is a bit of a controversy so I was using that as kind of a, an example just to kind of push you to think about how you live your daily life and you know something we take for granted or most of us do every day use the toilet and think about a fundamental way that we could change that based on new evidence and the idea that you wouldn't change something so fundamental is a type of collective hubris on a small scale. Now how does collective hubris relate to societies at large? Well, let's think about a society that is just starting out. It's a small group of people that are making their way through the world. Often, as they start to expand and gain control, or at least relationships with those around them, they bump into new types of food, new types of ideas, new technologies. And these young, small communities often are nimble and able to adapt and incorporate those new ideas, foods, and technologies into their own culture. As they expand and grow larger, they're going to be bumping up into more food, technology, and ideas, and they'll be adapting those and integrating them into their own culture as they get larger and larger. This creates a new suite of cultural adaptations, and it is probably completely different from the society when it started. And once they reach an apogee, once they stop expanding, they often canonize or retrench with these ideas. They make them the way to live. This can be different agricultural systems, different moral systems, different belief systems, and they'll make them sacrosanct. And once something becomes sacrosanct, it is hard to change it, right? You can't change moral codes very easily. You can't change food ways or what people eat very easily. Once things have been in place for a couple of generations or more, people start to believe that it is the only proper way to live, and they start to put down those outsiders who live in a different way. They say they're backwards or uncivilized or whatever sort of euphemism you want to use. Basically, they're saying, these people don't know how to live. We know how to live the right way. So this is growing into this collective hubris idea. Now, over that same time, when the generations are going by living the same way for years and years, the world around this society is changing. The environment changes. The agricultural conditions change. The societies that are their neighbors change. Their trade partners change. And catastrophes come and go. Now, these things are usually handled by a society that is rather robust. They're handled best by a society that is willing to adapt to them. But as we're seeing this, generic society, has decided that they're going to live the same way forever, because that's the right way to live. Once things change so much that their way of living is maladaptive, that it's not supporting them anymore, they're going to collapse, or they're going to change. But more often, they're going to collapse. And we've seen how this worked with a variety of ancient societies across the world. We looked at the environment and how drought and degradation helped spur the collapse of maya society it linked to their agricultural collapse or social collapse and their trade transition and the linchpin was the ancient maya or at least the maya before the collapse didn't want to change their way of living to adapt to the new conditions they had lived the same way for hundreds of years successfully so why change it and they had doubled down on the practices that had helped contribute to their eventual collapse In Mesopotamia, we see a similar problem. As the fields became more and more salinated, instead of adapting their agriculture to produce less saline fields, they just expanded the fields and made more fields that became saline. In Rome, we saw the failure to adapt to a new economic norm, and the ancient Romans felt that they were the center of their empire, and they ignored the changing conditions around them, where the provinces actually grew up to be more economically powerful. In Egypt, we see social organization as not only an important part of the reason that they lasted for thousands and thousands of years, because they had such a cohesive, unified national identity, um, which was a great benefit for them. We also see that periods of trial and tribulation and collapse, the boom and bust cycle of ancient Egypt was in part due to the breakdown of the social order at the elite levels, and these collapses often coincided with stress put on the society by environmental and agricultural factors. So again, all of these systems are working together. The Aztecs and the Inca, of course, were overpowered by the Spanish, and we like to think, I don't know if we like to think, but it is commonly said that it's because of Guns, Germs, and Steel, which is the famous Jared Diamond book, that the Spanish were able to take over because the compromise immune system of the Aboriginal Americans, as well as their superior weapons and uh, tactical maneuverability and all these different things allowed the Spanish to take over. But what we really see is that it was the hubris of the ancient Aztecs and the Inca did not take seriously the threat that was the Spanish, although they were decimated by this disease, by these diseases it was also the fact that the Spanish were such a small force. It didn't seem like they would have been able to take over their mighty empire. So it was that hubris saying that, well, it's just a few guys. What could they possibly do? Well, they can take over your empire. So there again, we see the idea of collective hubris coming forward. So change is fundamental to human societies. But it's sometimes when you're living in that moment, it's hard to see which changes are most adaptive. So why don't we take a minute and walk through our current society and look at some of the ways that we have hubris in our own society as far as the environment goes we continue to believe that we can use fossil fuels with no major restrictions we think that science will solve climate change the idea of that is called high modernism by an anthropologist named james c scott this is basically the idea of putting blind faith in technology and invention to solve whatever problems we come up with. But we have to understand that the environment is a huge system, and it's taken us 150 years to really start that pendulum swinging by putting tons and tons of carbon in the atmosphere. It's going to take a significant amount of human energy and thought to slow that pendulum down. Just think of the amount of energy we've put into industry over the past 150 years. Stopping those effects are going to take a similar amount of effort, and I don't know if we have it in us in the short and near-term future. And so this is one point of hubris that we have in our own society. We all know how much we depend on agriculture, yet we continue to push the industrial agricultural model, even though we know it's destroying the environment and our health. GMOs might have many benefits, but most of the perceived benefits come from increased application of fertilizer and pesticides, as well as government subsidies and social pressures to increase acreage. So it's really not as cut and dried as the different camps want it to be made out. Pro-GMO people say, of course, oh, look at the yield increase when you use GMO seeds. Look at how much food we're growing. We have to grow more and more food to feed an ever-growing population. Well, that's too far to one side. That's quite a bit of an overstatement. But on the other hand, we have people who are GMO skeptics who say it's giving us everything from autism to cancer, and we don't have causal links identified, so we can't quite go that far either. GMOs are like any other technology. We have to look at how it affects the society that adopts this technology. And one of the big problems that we see is the massive use of fertilizer that are required for GMOs to be so productive. And that fertilizer, of course, is all derived from fossil fuels of which we have a limited supply and we shouldn't just use without restriction. Our current world also relies on long-distance transportation of staples. Our trade system is entirely built on long-distance transportation, which, of course, is underwritten by massive amounts of fossil fuels. Once we have to cut those out, we're going to have to stop relying on such rapid and long-distance transportation to get just the basics to survive. We're going to have to have a much more localized economy for the things we need, and maybe trade farther for the things that we can't necessarily make ourselves. Additionally, the overburden or the extra cost and effort of transportation, processing, storage, retail, etc. Remove many of the efficiencies of industrial production. Sure, an industrial potato field can make way more potatoes than I ever could in my backyard. But then when you have to harvest them, transport them, wash them, sort them, package them, distribute them, warehouse them, sell them, you lose a lot of those efficiencies. So it's a little bit of hubris to say, well, potatoes are so cheap. This must be the most effective way to do it. Well, that's not really looking at the whole picture. And we need to question that very carefully. We might have a little bit of hubris in our own social organization as well. The Egyptians did so well because they had a common bond. But today in the industrialized world, we don't really have one. And do we need a worldwide emergency to bring us together? Sometimes it seems that a common foe is the only thing that unites people. And it's really a shame that it's a common enemy that we need to bring us together. But if we keep these things up, our common enemy is going to be the changing climate and some, you know, maybe this will happen, but I just hope it's not too late. Additionally, the way that our society is so led by profit-motivated bodies, corporations and other large entities often dictate public policy. This seems somewhat worrisome, seeing as their primary interest is profit for themselves, whereas public policy really should be focused on making public safer, happier, healthier. The final thing we talked about was catastrophes, and again here, instead of planning ahead and stopping the foreseen catastrophes from happening, we let them happen and then deal with the aftermath. It seems like we're lurching from disaster to disaster and we never have time to get ahead of the game and stop some of these problems before they get any worse. Ebola, I think, is a primary example of this. Ebola's been known since the 1970s, yet it took The threat of a global outbreak for us to develop a treatment for it? It wasn't until recently that they fast-tracked the production of something to fight Ebola. Only when it became large enough of a problem that it became profitable, one might argue. Pretty cynical, but has some truth to it. It's a shame that we waited from the 1970s to now to work on this problem in a serious way. Not to say that there weren't people working on it, but we didn't put a lot of effort behind it until it became almost a global catastrophe. Another example is the California drought. We know that due to environmental change and agricultural practice, social organization, and trade, we are going to suck all of the water out of California. As California is the produce basket of the United States, because we use this long-distance transportation network, we are encouraging california farmers to continue using water resources that they're not able to replenish just to export all this produce across the country even though other parts of the country are perfectly capable of growing produce on their own it's just more at this time economically feasible to grow these things in california and transport them cheaply across the country why not move now to a model that is more distributed where people across the country are growing and distributing produce more locally and thus saving some of the water in california keeping it in the ground for the things that really need to be done in california it's hard to look at our own society objectively and see where we are perhaps engaging in hubris on our own it's difficult to take ourselves out of our day-to-day lives and really think about how our system, how the structure of our society may be leading us to some difficult decisions in the near future. And that's the reason I really started the Low Tech Institute, was to think about, okay, we know that these challenges are going to be coming in the future, so let's look now at some proactive adaptations that we can adopt on a large scale and research them, troubleshoot them, figure out solutions to problems that are going to be coming, so that when they do come, we already have ideas in place as to how we can best adapt to a changing world around us and that's all I have for the main topic today Uh, a little shorter than usual but that's okay we're wrapping up a long series of discussions so uh, thanks for sticking with us through it and uh, our next topic that we're going to be discussing in depth is food and we'll be kicking that off with a podcast on hunting in two weeks all right Let's move on to this week's DIY feature. This week, we looked at a solar oven that I made this last spring, and it's a parabolic, or it's a quarter parabolic dish. And the idea is mounting, oh, I think it was about 150 small mirrors onto a curve so that when it's oriented towards the sun, every one of those mirrors bounces the sun right onto the bottom of a pot. This heats up the water or whatever you're cooking inside it. And it can boil water in a matter of 10 minutes if it's a warm day in a clear sky. So it's a pretty effective way to use solar heat to cook, uh, to boil water for emergency situations where you don't have power but you need to disinfect water. This could do it. Or you can cook dinner. Anything you can cook in a crock pot, you can basically make on a solar oven. Even on a partly cloudy day, you can get enough sun coming and going to cook a normal meal. It takes a little bit of practice. You have to plan ahead and get your meal going during the lunch hour often, and then keep it warm through the afternoon, which is pretty easy with a solar oven. It requires a little bit of an unobstructed view to the south so that you can get the arc of the sun through the day. There are simpler, there are many, uh, simpler designs. Mine was a little complicated, but it was more of an experiment just to see if I could build it. You can see a video on our blog, which you can find at Low Institute. That's all one word, And just click on the blog link there and you'll be able to see the DIY feature this week and other weeks. And now for a few research updates been a quiet week. We've been really busy because uh, we're getting ready for a couple major uh, changes around here involving a move and a couple other things. So stay tuned for more news about that. I have been keeping the mushroom research going. And what that means is I've been uh, turning over the composted horse manure that I have working right now. It's still heating up to about 140 degrees every time I turn it, so that means it's still too hot to put the mushroom spores in, but I did get spawn uh, in the mail. Finally, I found somewhere to supply me with some button mushroom spawn. So my plan right now is to pack the compost into mushroom beds, and once it's ready, I will spawn one bed with the mushroom spawn, which is basically the root structure that will spread out and take over this bed. And then I'll break that bed up and plant that in further beds to create a much larger mushroom grow than I would otherwise have been able to do with the spawn that I was able to buy. Now for this week in low tech news, there's a series of building articles this week from tiny houses with passives and solar features to building blocks that emit a lot less carbon dioxide than traditional concrete, which is one of the major emitters of carbon dioxide in our building chain. I also threw in a slideshow of some of the oldest forests in the world, which is a lot of fun to look at and you know kind of gets you to take a step back from the hurly-burly of the world and just think about you know these forests and trees and ecosystems that have been existing for thousands of years and we can still appreciate them so that's that's a fun slideshow to have a look at. It also segues into uh, an announcement that we're going to be having a photo contest that I will be putting out on the blog, on Twitter, on Facebook in the coming weeks. This will be a low-tech photo contest, and that doesn't mean you have to take low-tech photos or do drawings or anything like that. It means it's looking for photos of a low-tech solution to a problem. So that could be anything from growing plants in a small space to figuring out how to share a common resource. So be thinking about that, get some pictures together, and I'll have details soon about how you can enter. Those are some of the stories we're following in low-tech news this week. To see links to the stories we discussed and more, visit the low-tech website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com, or you can follow the link in our podcast profile. And now, let's move on to our new feature, an event calendar. We're really excited to offer our first workshop in about a month. We'll be getting our hands in some dough at Grovy's Provisions in St. Louis's Tower Grove neighborhood. Attendees will learn about proper dough hydration and mixing, sourdough starter care, and how to ball and form a freestanding loaf. And then you'll get to learn a little bit about using a wood-fired oven. The workshop runs from 2 to 5 on December 3rd and 10th. Demand has been high, so maybe we'll even add a third date later in November. So visit the website and find the blog entry with more information about that workshop. And if you're in the St. Louis area, we'd love to have you come join us. Workshops will be a regular feature of the Institute once we get our permanent location established in the coming year. If you're in the Madison, Wisconsin area or even Chicago area, get ready because we're coming to your area soon. We're particularly interested in hearing from those of you with skills to share. So if you have a workshop that you'd like to offer, we'd really like to hear from you, send us an email. Lowtech institute at gmail.com well that's it for the week the low-tech podcast is put out by the low technology institute at the moment the show is hosted edited and distributed by me scott johnson this episode was recorded at the lowtech tech recording room in st louis missouri our intro music was pyramid level off the album songs from an unmade world by Visegor. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share-Like License, meaning you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating. It helps boost our audience reach. I'd be happy to have your feedback, which you can leave me on soundcloud.com slash Podcasts. That's all one word. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. You can follow us at Twitter Our handle is at Low underscore Techno. It's a capital E and a capital T. And you can also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. Thanks and take care.